Welcome to another Psych Matters podcast from the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists. Psych Matters is a series of discussions on training and practice issues facing trainees and fellows of the college and other important topics in mental health. This episode provides a quick clinical update on the evidence base and recommendations for managing mental health impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, especially as 15 million Australians are in lockdown at the time of recording this episode on the 19th of August 2021. Professor Geoffrey Louis discusses Dr Paul Maguire's research into patient information sources, risk perceptions and willingness to undertake protective measures during the 2009 swine flu pandemic for persons with schizophrenia and general practice patients. The discussion concludes with research and clinical recommendations in relation to media exposure, managing misinformation, communication and maintaining mental health during the current pandemic. Welcome to the Psych Matters podcast on risk and illness perceptions research and also a clinical update on managing media exposure and misinformation during COVID-19. I'm Geoffrey Louis from the ANU Medical School and due to extenuating circumstances I'm your only host today because my colleague, uh, Dr. Paul Maguire, has unfortunately had an illness and not been able to join us on the podcast. We'll be citing Paul's research and that of his colleagues, which is very essential to us understanding about how people with schizophrenia manage information in relation to influenza and COVID-19 pandemic. So as an outline of what we'll be talking about today, we'll be focusing on risk and illness perceptions, as well as practical strategies to help care for people with serious mental illness such as schizophrenia, and more generally in our population for which we look after is psychiatrists, that is our general patient, and also supporting our colleagues in the community. So without further ado, I'm going to talk about research that uh, Dr. Paul Maguire began rather presciently uh, in 2009, looking at the risk and illness perceptions of the then swine flu pandemic in people with schizophrenia and also people who attended general practices in the ACT. And this study involved 73 people with schizophrenia and 238 general practice attendees from the same practice. Paul and his team verified that the people who were included in the study had a psychiatrist-confirmed diagnosis of schizophrenia according to the specific diagnostic criteria, and the general practice attendees were people who attended the same general practices as people who suffered from the schizophrenia. The Important aspects of the research can be divided into three areas and hinge around the concerns that we have in relation to supporting people with schizophrenia, particularly during pandemics and times where these health measures are needed in order to help protect them. The context is that people with schizophrenia are a particularly vulnerable group during the COVID-19 pandemic because they have increased rates of illnesses that are common due to problems with poverty and difficult lifestyle choices because of their deprivation and lack of social support. 
These include problems such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, ischemic heart disease, and diabetes mellitus type 2. There are also poverty-related and isolation-related health uh, and lifestyle behaviours that affect people with schizophrenia, including smoking, obesity, alcohol and illicit substance abuse. In relation to other factors that might impact on people with schizophrenia, there are also uh, antipsychotic medications that can, through their side effects, contribute to obesity, as well as difficulties in engaging with GPs and other health services, which they need for their general health conditions. So it's in this context that Dr. Maguire and his colleagues started to look at the aspects of risk and illness perception in people with schizophrenia. And it was particularly opposite at that time in relation to the swine flu epidemic. And now in relation to the pandemic, some of this information is very useful because it relates to very similar health measures and a very similar, if not more serious threat for people with schizophrenia and the general community from the COVID-19 pandemic. So one of the important parts of understanding about how people react to concerns about their health during a pandemic or epidemic are to understand the ways in which they gather information. And it was very interesting that Paul and his team's research found that people with schizophrenia most commonly reported using a doctor, family and friends, and interestingly, television to obtain information on health matters. However, compared to the general practice attendees, that is, the general population who are attending GP practices, they gained less health information from doctors and the internet and had less trust in doctors in general. So this is illustrate some of the complexities of how they might gather information. And for people with schizophrenia, those who were living alone had increased likelihood of obtaining health information from television, and a higher level of education increased the odds of trusting the internet as a health information source. One of the more unusual characteristics which listeners around Australia may or may not be aware of is that in Canberra we have generally even amongst the people who have uh, mental illness, a very high average educational level. So this may be something that's not necessarily translatable to all areas. Those who had a higher estimated household income had also an increased likelihood of trusting newspapers, which may also indicate some sociocultural characteristics. And women with schizophrenia were more likely than men with schizophrenia to trust family and friends as providers of health information. For both groups, that is the general practice and the people with schizophrenia attendees, there were significant positive correlations between the amount of health information obtained from an information source and the level of trust invested in it. So the take-homes here for uh, psychiatrists and GPs and other healthcare workers, as well as friends and families of people with schizophrenia, is that they are more likely to trust, to some extent, their family and friends but they still do trust their, their doctors, though to a lesser extent than some of the general population. They may indeed be more likely in some settings, depending on the development of the relationship, to trust in their treating psychiatrist. And this is something I'll come back to later when we're talking about the general population, but also people who are attending 
psychiatrist practices. And interestingly, the internet, uh, which was still well in evidence, of course, in 2009, wasn't a trusted information source. And that may relate to concerns about misinformation or disinformation on the internet that people with schizophrenia may feel that they're more vulnerable to. So following on that, Paul and his team continued to do further research, which was with the same population group to look at how people with schizophrenia directly judge their risk. And in understanding this, we have to work with the information about how risk is perceived in the general human population and also how that will affect people with serious mental illness such as schizophrenia. Although there's no universally accepted definition of risk perception, there are two main components, that of uncertainty and a negative outcome. So risk of perception could be viewed as a person's subjective assessment of the likelihood and the severity of an adverse outcome to a particular threat, in this case, to swine influenza in the research that Paul conducted, but of course, relevant now to COVID-19 and the pandemic. Why are these important? Risk perceptions clearly influence health behavior. So how someone perceives a risk will determine how they act on this. And in the last part of Paul's research, we'll talk about what people did in relation to their perceived fears. But I'm wanting to focus here on the components of how risk was perceived by people with schizophrenia. And it was interesting and concerning that for people with schizophrenia, one of the main motivators of whether they saw a risk for themselves, which would seem to a layperson in some ways unsurprising, was their affect, which is what we use in the ter technical term in psychiatry for their mood, their mood of as a, as a fluctuating state as opposed to mood as a long-term stable state. The affect was one of fear that led people to perceive a greater risk uh, rather than concerns about feeling depressed or anxious. And this was a significant concern for people with schizophrenia. And how this plays out in practical terms is that when people are frightened, there's a component of risk perception, which is feelings, which provides a rapid intuitive response to a threat, which is mostly what motivates us to undertake action. When people have time to process and read information, as well as absorb it from other media sources, there's another type of perception where people analyze risk with a deliberate logical and cognitive appraisal of the threat. The interesting thing in terms of the findings were that for people with schizophrenia, they were more than three times more likely to perceive a moderate to extreme risk to themselves from swine influenza if they predicted higher levels of fear in the event they themselves were exposed or infected. These are consistent with the existing research, demonstrating that a highly fearful affect, that is dread, has a strong influence on a person's perceived risk to a given threat. The other aspect that is relevant here is that, paradoxically, high anxiety scores, which were evident in the studies in which the research that uh, Dr. McGuire conducted, 
were actually potentially counterproductive, that people who were too anxious may have been impeded from accurately assessing the risk and therefore not actually reacting to it because they are concerned with a general level of anxiety that makes it difficult for them to perceive the threat in relation to the swine flu in this case. And in a similar manner, we would predict for the pandemic in the current situation. So this is a very interesting finding in terms of how people feel emotionally and how they act on it. So that leads very well into the aspects of what do people with schizophrenia do when they are able to perceive the risk and have taken in their information. So the last aspect that we'll discuss is the willingness to uptake protective measures against the influenza pandemic by people with schizophrenia. So Paul and his team investigated very closely what sorts of measures, and these are directly relevant to the current pandemic for COVID-19, that people would undertake. That is, measures such as vaccination, isolation, wearing a face mask, increasing hand washing, all very relevant factors in the current environment because as we are recording now, we have roughly 15 million Australians in lockdown in various types, which is just under or close to 58% of the Australian population. So these findings, though they relate to people with schizophrenia, are some of the few empirical findings uh, that adequately and peer-reviewed research that can help us inform how we should act and support people during the pandemic, and particularly people, of course, with schizophrenia. So the interesting findings from here, which are relevant for how we support people, were that people with schizophrenia reported that they would be at least moderately willing to be vaccinated. That is 74.2%. Isolate themselves, 73.2%. Wear a face mask, 54.9%, and increase hand washing, 88.6%. However, there were potential misconceptions, which probably aren't necessarily different from aspects of the general population and things that have been mentioned anecdotally here during the COVID 19 pandemic. 71.8% of the people with schizophrenia were concerned about catching the flu from the vaccination. So what were the factors that helped predict willingness to adopt protective actions? That is the thinking around that. And an important factor, and which we'll come back to again when we're talking about some of the general recommendations for the population, one of the most important was self-efficacy. How effective, when I take the action, will it be effective in helping me to protect myself? And this was an area in which they felt more confident in relation to vaccination face masks, and isolation. The other predictors of willingness to adopt protective actions are the perceived likelihood of contracting the swine flu in this case, and this related to the willingness to undertake the vaccination, and this informs us about some of the education and other measures that are relevant potentially for the general population and educational status. People who were more highly educated were more likely to want to use the face mask, as well as the overall risk from the swine flu being a factor for there. So what were the other modifiable perceived barriers to adopting protective measures that Paul and his team picked up? These included 
cost and transport assistance for vaccination. I will like to drill down into some of the information that we have on the scales just to help give some indicators, though I'm not suggesting we extrapolate this to the whole population, but to help understand some of the concerns that may be relevant because people with schizophrenia will have, in general, still similar concerns to the general population and interestingly perceive barriers to vaccination, concerns about side effects were very similar to the general population that we had, well over 30%. And this is something that seems to have been playing out in real time in the current situation. For the general practice attendee population, the time needed for vaccination was something endorsed by over 30%. So this is relating to the 238 people without psychiatric illnesses that were attending the general practices that the people with schizophrenia attended. And there were concerns about costs. So these were the main leading concerns that people had about vaccination. In relation to isolation, the interesting information here is that both people with schizophrenia and the general population, over 35%, closer to 37.5% or so, said that loneliness and missing social contact were barriers to isolating themselves. Attending work or university was about 34%. For the general population, though less understandably for people with schizophrenia who have severe illnesses and are not able to work. And also at around 25% or 26% for the general population, attending to child, family or carer duties. And relevant to all of us who are in lockdown, just over 225 or 23% for both groups accessing food or groceries. So these are the very real world concerns that we're facing day to day in the three states that are in major lockdowns, such as Victoria, New South Wales, and the ACT. The other parts of information that are really interesting from Paul's research are the information, because embedded in the research, as we've been talking about, was information about how the general population in practice were responding to concerns. And pretty high on the scores here at about 34% for the general population was stigma or appearance with a face mask. And just under about 24%, the face mask was uncomfortable. And around 15% for both groups endorsed difficulty breathing as concerns. So these are potential concerns with using these because as you recall during the swine flu epidemic, we didn't actually have the lockdowns. It was mainly a vaccination program because the infectiousness and the danger wasn't quite as severe, and it had not made its ways to, to our shores in the degree that we have, unfortunately, at the present time with the Delta virus. So with relation to hand washing, main concerns people had were about access to facilities. It's changed a bit because with certainly with our own pandemic uh, at the present time, a lot of people have access to their own types of hand washes, alcohol-based and otherwise related. And people were concerned at around 15% or so about remembering to do it. And particularly people with schizophrenia were concerned about the time and side effects like skin irritation. So these are really interesting findings and will help us inform how we continue to provide advice to the general population. So the hidden gems in Paul's and his team's research were the information about the general population willingness. And this, uh, as far as I can see, hasn't been drawn out as much in, in other uh, responses to the pandemic, but really very relevant. 
and uh, a testament to Paul Maguire and his team in how forward-thinking they were about this research. So I think that covers most of the aspects that I wanted to mention about the uh, schizophrenia research. And in the next section, I'm going to move on to managing media exposure and misinformation during COVID-19, drawing on some of these factors. I hope that you're enjoying this podcast. If you have a topic suggestion or would like to participate in a future episode of Psych Matters, we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us by email at psychmatters.feedback at rnzcp.org. So Paul's research leads into our research from the Consortium of Australian Academic Psychiatrists for Independent Policy Research and Analysis that we raised together with Paul on how to manage media exposure and misinformation during COVID-19. Some of this shades over into the recommendations potentially to consider with how to promote vaccination and encourage public health measures, building on Paul's research, but also other research that has been conducted around the world about media exposure. Because one of the contextual concerns, and certainly affecting most of us who have been in lockdown, is that one of the few ways that we can connect with the world, so it's both positive and negative, is through media and the internet, streaming services, news services, television. And there are both pros and cons of this. Clearly, the pros of it are that we can continue to connect. That's how we're recording this podcast today, and also how we're conducting research around the world without anyone being able to travel significantly. So that's a that's clearly a positive. How we share information about managing COVID-19 as well. There are also, also aspects that are positive. The negatives are about the concerns and the aspects of where people feel that they can't really escape the media cycle and the media exposure. I had a patient the other day who had mentioned to me catastrophe scrolling and looking through the difficulties that were happening around the world, one of which at the moment has been the collapse of the Afghanistan government. But in the context, when we first raised these concerns in 2020, some of the concerns that we had were about the bushfire episodes that racked the country just before the COVID-19 pandemic. It led to breathing-related lockdowns where people couldn't go outside because the air quality was so poor. So I'd like to cover some of the recommendations and information, as well as summarize the evidence related to that. So the context is that threats associated with COVID-19 and other disasters have really dominated media reporting through the latter part of 2019, right until the present time, with the other sorts of problems that are occurring in the world, including social unrest that's arising from COVID-19 related complications and problems in the community. These have included panic buying, stockpiling, trade impacts, and more laterally, protests against public health measures related to COVID-19, but also other social unrest that has occurred because of injustices in society, such as the Black Lives Matter protests. What I want to outline here is some of the research that relates to this and how this can help us understand and provide advice as psychiatrists to our patients and the community, as well as to advise government how to better handle the communication in relation to managing media, as well as misinformation and mistrust. 
So there has been very interesting research over the last couple of decades looking into how population mental distress can occur through both conventional and social media. And one of the aspects that has impinged on our lives, virtually all of us now have apps relating to the monitoring of attendance at venues for potential exposure for COVID-19. But around the time of the bushfires, there were also apps that alerted to you whether there's a fire near you. And it's also possible with some of the apps that they can send you notifications about where there's an exposure area near you with COVID-19. Whilst there's obvious usefulness in some of this information, being bombarded with the levels of notification and the fact that the notifications are designed to engage users and increase use of social media and the apps themselves, this can lead to problems with people being overexposed and unduly concerned because they can't really escape that cycle of contact with the media and also these apps. So Kiran and Sunstein, who are public policy researchers, coined the term availability cascades, which can occur amongst social media users. That is, self-reinforcing collective belief formation through which an expressed perception, especially of risk, fuels a chain reaction that gives the perception of increasing plausibility through its rising availability in the public discourse or discussion. This in itself would be a significant concern. But the other research that has looked at how people form their appraisals of risk and related to the risk perception research is that negative cognitions and perceptions are more salient and occupy more awareness than positive cognitions due to an inherent human negativity bias. Because the negativity bias gives us some protectiveness against perceiving threats. Because if we were not biased to perceive threats, we would not take any action on them. However, the combination of these availability cascades through media exposure can supercharge the negativity bias, and this can spread through social media networks more easily. And research by Nicholas Christiakis and related colleagues have shown that anxiety and depression can spread across real-world social networks with the potential amplification effect of these spreads of mood through the social media networks as well. So this is an environment which causes quite a lot of concern in relation to the potential for media exposure, be it television, radio, the internet, uh, streaming services, etc., to cause cycles of availability cascades with the spread of negativity in social networks. Well, what has the research shown? It has shown that increased exposure to television reporting was associated with post-traumatic stress disorder symptomatology and bona fide post-traumatic stress disorder caseness in a review of 36 studies on terrorism and seven of natural disasters. Media exposure around the time of Hurricane Sandy predicted significantly higher levels of post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms independent of the actual exposure to the hurricane. For Hurricane Irma, exposure to all media coverage was associated with self-forecasted post-traumatic stress disorder symptomatology 
and forecasted symptoms were significantly associated with adjustment after the hurricane. This indicates that modulating media communication before and after a threat may be a useful intervention. How do we do this? There's not been a great level of guidance more recently, and most of the research relating to media exposure has been related to social unrest consumption of media. And some of the most innovative research was conducted through the ongoing tragic circumstances, the difficulties for people in various regions of the world. And in the 2016 Occupy protests in Hong Kong, higher levels of depressive symptoms were associated with greater social media exposure of greater than or equal to 60 minutes of protest-related news and Facebook usage, up to one to six times per week, but not television or radio exposure. There's some suggestions that social media usage of greater than two hours per day were associated with both depressive and post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms in a longitudinal study of social unrest in Hong Kong from 2009 to 2019. So these media-related and mediated mental symptoms may amplify the communicability of mental illness via social networks. In recent months, there has been a concurrent level of social unrest that we've seen particularly during the Delta aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic, either from the COVID-19 public health measures or concerns about social issues which have risen to prominence, such as poverty and inequality. We're concerned, certainly, that this may also create more availability cascades, which are then further enhanced through perceptions that they provide a risk to the population, and then they're amplified again through social media. So these are cycles of which we should be concerned. In parallel with this, there are concerns about misinformation and mistrust that can also drive population mental distress. This is a very big area, so I'm just going to summarize some of the recent information with some definitions. Misinformation can be people that have misunderstood various aspects of information and then are promulgating that through social media or other services. This is distinct from disinformation, which is generally used in the description of oppressive government and espionage, where people actively promote information that they know to be incorrect in relation to the facts or which they regard as useful for their governance or espionage purposes. There's also inequality-driven mistrust, which was evident in AIDS denialism, which was one of the precursors of how we know about misinformation and mistrust during the problems previously with the AIDS epidemic and how we dealt with it. The other aspect to be concerned about are conspiracy beliefs. And these are often the hardest to actually address. Conspiracy beliefs that COVID-19 is part of a secret plot by an alliance of powerful individuals or organizations abound in current media and have a high level of availability to information cascades and availability cascades. They're difficult to counter since anyone speaking out against the conspiracy is often seen as part of the conspiracy. However, there are also justifiable concerns that people have about economic instability, distrust of government, and economic distress. There's also maybe levels of distrust uh, amongst people with 
culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds who may be at greater risk of harm from COVID-19 due to health and socioeconomic adversity. And it's quite difficult to address these matters unless there's significant outreach to the community. So putting all these together to try and help with some take-homes to help psychiatrist colleagues and GPs and other healthcare workers to help manage COVID-19 media consumption misinformation, we put together some points in an article that we'll post a link to uh, on online, including the links to, to Paul's papers that we've mentioned today and some additional other information that you can access through the RNZCP portal. So the important information here is that consistent, succinct, and contemporaneous communication across all media from a single trusted source must be provided. And this was a recommendation from the Australian Medical Association, informed by some of our advice from the earlier version of Capipra, our research analysis initiative. Governance and public health authorities must provide clear, timely, and accurate information on threats such as COVID-19. Separately, there's a specific need to provide timely counter-information to misinform social media and take the necessary actions to prevent it, adding to the negative impact on the population mental health of threats. Examples of very effective strategies include the World Health Organization's provision of accurate updates, as well as correction of information, and the UN Media Communication Initiative to distribute and support resource-scarce countries' media responses as well. The Singaporean government has also been very assertive in trying to correct misinformation in communication to their population when people have falsely reported outbreaks or other misinformation. And this is really worthwhile considering and implementing. However, because people mistrust some of the communication from governments and authorities, communication still needs to be carefully crafted to address health and socioeconomic adversity, as well as vulnerabilities that people might feel from racism and being uh, victimised in media coverage or in the provision of information. For general purposes, media coverage should be limited to the minimum necessary for public safety and promotion of optimal behavioural responses. Combined with significant warnings on the risk of excessive exposure to the media and correcting information. So the practical tips that I would like to finish with here, uh, recommendations for health professionals to manage COVID-19 misinformation and media consumptions, as well as also help us all manage during the lockout. And these, though they predated, they echo some of the recent advice that uh, available through the media at the present time. We, as psychiatrists, should continue to encourage patients to maintain physical and mental health via regular work, leisure, exercise, good nutrition, and optimal sleep patterns in ways consistent with the public health measures. So for those people who are working from home, and many people have, including our, our hardworking staff who've been supporting the podcast today, keeping that work-life balance and managing work hours and having a demarcation is essential. We also ask psychiatrists to inquire about and provide support for patients' concerns about and impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic and public health measures, including physical distancing, social isolation, appropriate hygiene, 
working from home and quarantine. Most recently, we have been considering, and there's a paper forthcoming in relation to this, about also supporting public health measures with information about vaccination. And it goes back to some of the excellent research that Paul conducted, that self-efficacy is a significant factor. And we have advised that it's significant and appropriate to disclose to patients if the psychiatrist or the doctor or the health professional was vaccinated. Because the next question that most patients ask is, well, are your family vaccinated? And all my family have been. And that's what I've been saying when patients ask, because I think that's an important message because it demonstrates the level of trust of the health professional in the process of vaccination and public health measures. And that has a significant bearing and is directly relevant for patients because most patients working with psychiatrists have the trust in their psychiatrist or those attending their GP and their GP. And there's nothing like doing as you say. We should also support patients with their COVID-19 concerns based on an understanding of what they know about the misinformation, the mistrust, particularly moderating this for social disadvantage and discrimination. We should still continue to encourage the healthy use of social media, streaming, video meeting, to maintain contact with family and friends. We did switch this week because in Canberra, at the time of the recording in mid-August, we switched immediately back to all video and telephone telehealth uh, because of the lockdown uh, in the local region. But we had the mechanism set up because of the preparations for the pandemic and patients and their families have become more used to this. We need to inquire about media consumption and its potential effect on individuals' mental health and more recently recommend limitations on time media consumption to no more than an hour daily, limiting social media regarding COVID-19 or other social issues or unrest. One patient said to me that they went so far as no more than half an hour of news a day, and that may have its merits depending on what you need to know because much of what you could find that's related to essential information, you could scan quickly on most of the public health websites in relation to exposure sites, uh, etc. We want to encourage patients to maintain their leisure interests and all of us working from home as well, as much as possible, as alternatives to media consumption, i.e. some people play board games, other people have been able to exercise as they could, reading physical books, but there's certainly nothing wrong with watching streaming videos of other events uh, or, or television programs or, or other media programs unrelated to the crises. Watching and listening to music, exercise, art and craft and outdoor recreation where permitted. Lastly, we want to recommend to patients to access reputable information sources on COVID-19, such as official government and health organisation websites, and provide sometimes a list of suitable information sources, though this is an evolving area. So this has been a quick trip through various aspects of understanding of how people perceive risk and recommendations on how we can manage risk with relation to media exposure, but also the communication about pandemic health measures. So with that, I hope that when you actually hear the recording, things will be better again. 
though, of course, things fluctuate. And as a whole population, we've all worked together to try and improve the situation with relation to the pandemic. And the interesting thing from some of our related research is that we do know that the whole world managed with even more dreadful pandemic in 1918 through to 1920 with the Spanish flu. And though it was much more severe in terms of its impacts and side effects, the whole human population still managed. And that's probably the most heartening thing. So I will say, stay safe and well. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Psych Matters. Feel free to share it with others and keep an eye out for future episodes. Psych Matters is produced by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists.